Hello, and welcome to episode 188 of AvTalk. I am, in fact, Ian Pechnik, even though I don't sound like it, and I'm here, as always, with... Jason Rabinowitz. I'm me. I I sound like me, but are are you sure you're Ian? It's touch and go right now, so I apologize for any editing that we need to do to this particular episode as I make my way through it. I'm enjoying what I hope is the tail end of the cold that all of the kids had last week that they then graciously, graciously gave me. So that's been fun. That's so nice of them. The best part about all of this is that the cold coincided with getting my bivalent COVID booster and flu shot. So I have felt just peachy the past couple days, which has just just been a whole lot of fun. You're going to power through it. I'm going to power through it. Everybody gets the Don LaFontaine version of me today. And if you don't know who that is, I've just dated myself and go look him up. But we've got a great show for you this week. There's a lot going on, a lot hap- a lot more than I thought happened. When we started putting the show notes together, I was like, oh, it was a quiet week last week. It was not a it quiet week last week. Going. It just snuck right up on us. But the best part of the show is going to be we're going to have Mark Van Honecker back on the show in a little bit. He has a new book coming out that kind of jumps off of Skyfaring that we talked about in a previous episode. And we're going to talk with with Mark about kind of the pilot's perspective on cities. Pilots often get a perspective that most of us don't on cities. And so we're going to talk about that. And, and he's going to read an excerpt from the new book. So I'm really looking forward to that. Let's get to the second best part. You have a story. Yeah. So this was a weird, weird thing. On Sunday, I went to the grocery store. That's not the weird part. On Sunday, I went to the grocery store and I was leaving the grocery store and and the, the particular grocery store I was at is on the north side of Chicago and is one of those kind of things where the parking deck is on the roof of the building. So the, the, the shopping area is on the first floor and then there's a parking deck on the roof of the building. And so I come out into the parking deck and, and I'm walking to my car and I get all the groceries into the car and I'm going to put the cart back walking from the, the car to the, to the cart return. And a drone, like a, a DJI Maverick, zooms up to me. Not close enough to hit me, but eye level, moving very fast and like slams on the brakes, maybe 10 feet from me. So I'm I'm not close enough to touch it. Okay. But it, it's close and kind of freaky. And I was like, that's weird. And so like I just kind of stop and look at it, and then it goes up, but doesn't go away. So it's just uh, there, kind of like hovering over. Maybe me. it's some whatever grocery store you're going to has a really <laughs> advanced like anti-shoplifting team. They were just really making sure you didn't <laughs> like, sneak out a can of beans or something. It must be. And so I go and put the cart back and the drone's there the whole time. It's now maybe 20, 30 feet above the parking deck. And I go and put the cart back and I'm walking back to my car and it comes closer. And it's got like the little camera thing pointed at me and it's following me. And I'm like, this is really weird. So I like stop and I wave at it, like thinking like, okay, maybe there's, you know, kids or whatever playing you know, doing something they shouldn't, but they're they're having good fun. So I wave at it and think that, okay, that maybe it'll go away. So I go and get in my car and I'm backing the car out to leave. And then it's there. It comes back and like hovers at windshield level in front of the car. 
I'm like, well, at this point, do I just turn your windshield wipers on or like, like, the, like the, the spray do do? and try to get it wet? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, that was just so weird. So I drove a little bit and the drone flies off, but I'm still in the parking deck. So at this point, I'm like, okay, I need to figure out where this is coming from because, you know, is it some kids? If it's some kids, dadgummit, they need a talking to. If it's not some kids, well, then I guess they I have to figure out what I'm going to do about it. They also need to talk to. Well, right. But then I guess I have to figure out what I'm, what I'm going to do about it. And so I follow it. I see like which way it's going and it goes over by a school. And so I'm like, okay, I, maybe they're they're standing in the, in the school thing. So I drive out of the parking lot and I drive over there and I don't see anybody. And then it goes kind of the opposite way, the drone that I, I still see, I didn't fly the opposite way and then just kind of disappears. And so now I'm like, well, I suppose I could drive around the neighborhood, but that doesn't seem like it's going to do any good. So long story short, it was a bizarre experience. Have you ever seen and the movie Goodfellas? by a drone. Y- yes. So basically like that, except instead of a police helicopter, it's a drone. <laughs> yeah. So like, did you go home and tell <laughs> your, your wife, like, I swear this helicopter, I mean, drone has been hovering over me all day and everyone's saying like, oh, no, you're just paranoid. You're, you're crazy. There's no drone. Basically that scene my in the money movie. Out of, yes, I'm ripping all my money out of my coffee cans <laughs> and everything. Yeah, no, it was just – it was just such a bizarre thing. And so like part of me wants to experience it again, just so that I can like track these guys down or bring like a fishing net, maybe. I like, I don't know. Well, like, what do you do? I mean, because technically, so they're wrong because they definitely weren't line of sight with the drone. Because no, it was nobody on the parking deck. Right. I looked around to make sure that it was nobody on the parking deck. But also, deck. I'm pretty sure you're not even allowed to like swat them out of the air. Right. So that's the other thing. Like they're definitely breaking the rules, but I also, you're not legally allowed to basically even like, I guess if it hits you, like then, like, I don't know what happens. What happens if they would hit me? Arm yourself with the can of beans I mentioned earlier. I don't know. Um, I get like, I, I mean like, but what happens? I get like- There have been cases in the past where this has been litigated where somebody was flying a drone over someone's private property and someone took a shotgun and blasted it out of the air. And I think they were arrested, I, I think, or something along those lines. Yes. The person with the gun was arrested. If not arrested, then at least cited. Yes. Yeah, something but, along those lines because you're, you're not allowed to do that. That's well, yeah. For one thing, that's reckless just firing a gun off into the air, but you're not allowed to shoot the thing out of the air. It's it's, right. it's a complicated topic, and I feel like your experience is, is something that's going to become less and less rare moving forward. Right. That, that was the point of the story. I, I feel like this is not going to be uncommon too far into the future. So what we do about these things, I, I think, is going to be a very interesting, interesting area for the law. I don't want to be the guinea pig. No, so, we're, we're going to have to, I guess, outfit your local grocery store with one of those airport military style uh, anti-drone RF systems to make sure this doesn't happen again. Somebody get Gatwick on the phone. <laughs> Ooh, they never found that guy. Yeah. Okay. Because he may not have existed. Because <laughs> he may not have existed. Okay. Enough about me. Let's talk about Boeing. So Boeing held its first investor day in – Three years? A long time. Yeah, three years. Three years since 2019. So Boeing held its first investor day today since 2019. A few tidbits came out of it that we'll discuss today. One, Boeing has officially confirmed that MAX certification, both for the MAX 7 and MAX 10, will not happen this year. Those get pushed back to next year for the MAX 7 at best and 2024 for the MAX 10 most likely. 
So that's an interesting bit of information that isn't entirely unexpected, but it's nice to hear them finally say it out loud. I don't know if it was entirely unexpected bit of information, but the depressing information that came out is that Boeing CEO David Calhoun said that there will be no new airplane, call it whatever you want. We've you know styled it the 797 for a while, just because that's eventually what we hope it'll be called, because if they don't call it that, that would just be weird. That will not even hit the drawing board until the next decade. Yeah, not great. The MAX, I guess, or the 7.3 as we know it today, will be in production for a long time to come. Two other bits of information that I want to talk about today, and then we're going to leave it because we're going to have a good friend of the show and a very wise man who knows much more about these things than we do. John Ostrauer from The Air Current will be on the program next week to talk about everything that we learned today and provide some much needed context beyond what Jason and I can offer. However, I will mention two things. Calhoun mentioned that for each 737 MAX that was already built during the pandemic and not delivered, or not necessarily built during the pandemic, but built and then not delivered both because of the pandemic and the grounding, it takes as many hours to get that aircraft into service as it did to build the original aircraft. The same for the reworked 787s. I mean, I guess that makes sense. If there's some degree of disassembly before you can fix the thing to reassemble it, that's a lot of work. And especially with the 737 MAX that were kind of built at the beginning and then uh, the beginning of the grounding, those require, you know, the older the aircraft is, even though these aren't old, the older the aircraft is, the more more effort they take. So very interesting things coming out of Boeing's yesterday. I'm glad they had it. And we'll talk a lot more in depth about it next week when we have John Ostra on the show. We will stick with Boeing just a little bit because there was a little bit of fun in China. A bit of a false start. Late last week. It was, I think, Thursday, Thursday, Friday. China Southern Airlines, which has a fleet of 737 MAX, scheduled its first 737 MAX flight for the end of October. They said, we're going to operate kind of a, a triangle route, and the first flight will be on the last day of October, October 30th, Sunday. And Everyone said, oh, this could be a turning point. This could uh, really mean something. It would be the first time a Chinese airline has carried passengers on the 737 MAX since March of 2019. And then they canceled the flight. Yeah. Well, when they said they were going to operate it, they didn't actually affirmatively say it, did they? Or did they just put it into the schedule and people noticed it? I think It was in the schedule. You you could purchase the flight. That's actually happened. Yeah. It was in the schedule. I don't think they put out a press release or anything saying they were going to do this. There was no It was in the schedule and it didn't actually operate. I think John Ostrauer again pointed out on the China Southern site, they said the cancellation reason was airlines, which is the most airline reason (laughs) of all to ever cancel a flight. But yeah, yeah, schedule anomalies like this happen all the time. Things come, things go. Some some human inputs the wrong thing and it gets sent out and then withdrawn a couple of days later. So it's not unusual to see junk in the schedule, but this junk in the schedule seemed particularly hopeful. Hopeful junk. I yeah, like hopeful, hopeful junk. junk. Hopeful junk. But after that false start, it, it seems like we're back right where we were before that, where there is no indication that the MAX is coming back to China anytime soon. And nothing has changed since our last podcast, even though all of this happened. Yeah. The interesting thing was, is that they scheduled it for a full week from 30 October to 5 November. They were just seeing if anyone was paying attention. And someone was paying attention. I think it was Danny Lee over at Bloomberg. 
I believe so. And then it did end up on the schedule and everyone said, hey, look at that. I'm sorry. It was Jamie Freed at Reuters. I, I want to get that right. And so, I mean, somebody was paying attention. So great job. And they said, no, we're just kidding. Oh, well. Oh, well. So this is an interesting one. We talked about this before we recorded the other day when it was, you know, the news first broke, but now there's an added dimension. So Cathay Pacific has been hampered by the fact that they've been avoiding Russian airspace. And that creates issues for them on the New York to Hong Kong route. And so they announced that beginning November 1st, they were going to go back to using Russian airspace. So the average, the flight time from New York to Hong Kong takes between 17 and 17 and a half hours going up over Canada and then basically coming down the eastern coast of Russia. And then on the 1st of November, they went back to the polar routing, which takes them through Russia proper. And that shaves two hours, two and a half hours off the flight time. So the average flight time over the past 30 days has been 17 hours and 10 minutes. Yesterday's flight took 14 hours and 45 minutes. So saves them a lot of time, a lot of fuel, and they no longer have to weight restrict the aircraft. But there's a twist. There's a twist. Because they are flying over Russia now, American Airlines has dropped its code share with Cathay on this particular flight because the sanctions on Russia by the United States say that US flights can't use Russian airspace. Not that it matters because Russia bars US aircraft anyway, but the US regulations also state that a flight number operation cannot take place, which is what a code share is. So American can't have their flight number tagged on the code share. So they had to drop the code share, which is, I mean, all kinds of code shares are still boggle my mind. Why airlines, you can't just have, you pick a flight number, that's the flight number. And if you want to work out yourselves between them, that's fine. You know, Do whatever you need to do, but why does the flight number need to change? That's just me. But because that's the way things work, American had to drop its code share. Yeah, I have thoughts about this. Thought me. Thought, Thought me, you. Jason. Well, well, Cathay appears to be the, the first large international airline to resume operations through Russian airspace. And I get this has- Airlines that had stopped. Right, airlines that have and, stopped. Yeah. And this is Cathay is the first to resume after withdrawing itself from, from Russian airspace. I don't think that's going to be a trend for many other airlines at all, but I get that this is a, a major cost and time saving for these flights, but they've been operating for months without issues. They worked around the problem. It just symbolically, this is icky to me. I, I don't like that Cathay has gone back on this voluntary removal of itself from Russian airspace. They claim that of course, this is an ETOPS flight and it is going through Russian airspace, but it will never need to divert to a Russian airfield in case of, of some sort of issue requiring a diversion. Take that with a grain of salt. I don't know how – I mean, emergencies happen and you can't always gauge just how badly you'll need to land somewhere. But that's aside from the fact I just – PR – wise, I, I do not like this move. This is a gross move and I just don't like it. I understand it. I just feel like they're going to be alone in this. I don't think this is going to open the floodgates. Like You're, you're not going to see other airlines that voluntarily remove themselves from Russian airspace also do this. 
I don't know. I have no plans to go to Hong Kong or, or fly Cathay anytime soon, but this kind of, it doesn't sit well with me. Here's the interesting thing. So the initial announcement was that they were going to reconfigure the route to use just the eastern part of Russian airspace. So you know what? Spot decision. I'm going to do a blog post about this because this is hey. actually pretty fascinating to me now. So here's the thing. I'm looking at this as we're talking about it. So what Cathay was doing pre or post invasion, pre adjustment, they were flying from New York, basically making the great circle to the north of Anchorage. And then they were flying down on the US side of the Bering Sea, routing around Russian airspace around the Kamchatka Peninsula, and then coming down through Japanese airspace. Then they said, okay, we're going to change that. And we're going to route through just the eastern portion of of Russian airspace. So we're going to to come down, do the same thing that we were doing through Alaska. But then instead of turning further south and coming through the US portion of the Bering Sea, we're going to go into the Russian portion of the Bering Sea, and then we'll come down through Japan. But yesterday, they completely abandoned They did that. not do that at all. They used they all of Russia. Yeah. And so, so that whole thing about like, we will never divert Literally to Russia. Literally on the first day of this new plan, they, they tossed that out. No, that, no. They, they did it for two days. No, this they, was they on November the, 1st, right? This kicked in November 1st. So they, they changed on the 30th of October. Ah, so or, or one, the twenty seventh of October. Okay, so, they so did it, it was a few. Two, two it was flights. a few days. Okay, but right. yeah, then almost immediately they reneged yeah. on their word. And this flight, what was it? Cathay eight four one eight four one eight four one and a three fifty nine hundred just went back to the old days and went all the way over Russia for hours and hours and hours. Yep. And uh, if they needed to divert, they would have ended up somewhere definitely in the the, the thick of Russia, probably with U.S. citizens on board who would have not been too happy to end up there. Yeah. So this is a really interesting one. And so you'll see a link to a blog post by the time the show comes out on <laughs> so Friday. happy to inspire. Kind of explaining what this is going on, because this is fascinating and not a great look for Cathay at the moment. No, I should make a, a, a Tweety box about that because this is this is interesting. I like this even less than when we started yeah, off this conversation. It somehow got worse. Let's go with good news. Hey, Okay. Switch this thing up a little bit. So today, when we're recording, which is not today in Australia because time zones are hard, but the 2nd of November is 100 years to the day from the first Qantas flight. Hey, happy birthday, Qantas. So Qantas began operations two years after the airline was founded. So it took them two years to get planes, pilots, mechanics, et cetera. All those things, then, yeah. Now, all the important stuff, I guess. Then on the 2nd of November, 1922, they loaded up 106 letters in a mailbag and flew a pair of flights over two days, 806 kilometers over two days to tell you how far we've come in the intervening 100 years. And so they recreated the flight today with a Dash 8 of all aircraft. Which isn't even a Qantas aircraft, I think, which is also Qantas kind of funny. Link. Yeah, kind of funny. It's not actually a Qantas aircraft. I think it had more to do with the, the airfields involved. Ah. That, that was the right they, aircraft. They didn't for want the spinny bits on the outside of the wing to make it really feel authentic. There's that. But so they're recreating the, the flight over, over two days, and they've got a bunch of history kind of on board and on display. So we'll put a link in the show notes to some really good photos of that's, that's the really original cool. flights from 100 years ago. So, so worth, worth checking out there. 
let's see, we went Hong Kong, Russia, Australia. Let's go to Mexico. Wow, we're, we're going all over the place. Okay. Yeah. Hopping all over. Yeah. This piece comes to us from Arrows, our friend Seth Miller, who put an interesting article together about how Mexico is considering letting foreign airlines operate cabotage flights within Mexico, which is basically they want to induce, I guess, more competition for domestic flights within Mexico using non-Mexican airlines, which I thought was really interesting. And he goes into a whole analysis about routes that used to have competition that now don't, but there's actually more service on a lot of routes that didn't pre-pandemic, but there are also fewer airlines like Interjet went bankrupt and just kind of vanished overnight in Mexico, but they were such a small percentage. But really struggling to think of any airline that would want to spin up a domestic airline or domestic operation within Mexico. Certainly none of the US airlines because they, they legally cannot right now since Mexico still has its decreased safety rating from the FAA. And the South American airlines, there aren't all that many of them at this point. They're all just these huge conglomerates and they yeah. don't have much spare capacity to begin with. So interesting thing to keep our eyes on to see if I don't know, Welling or something or one of the IAG or, or Lufthansa Group Airlines wants to start up a, a local operation in Mexico. That could be mildly interesting. Fly Dubai, Mexico. I mean, Norwegian tried. I think there was Norwegian Air Argentina for like 47 minutes or something like that. I think they operated no more than a handful of flights. It was extremely short in duration. But given the opportunity, I feel like Norwegian would have jumped all over this back in the day. Yeah. I mean, maybe. It's a big market. So if if you have the capacity, if you have the pilots and, and they allow it, I feel like somebody could be successful here if they if they understand the market. That's what I think is is going to be the real crux of things because to operate domestically in Mexico, they're going to need to be able to have either latch on to somebody else's brand recognition or have a big enough brand already, but then be able to come in and understand the market to make sure that those flights are going to be full or at least full enough to make it work. Definitely something to keep an eye on and whether if this works, does this become a model elsewhere? I don't foresee that, but might be cool to find out. Could be fun. Jason, are you supposed to smoke on an aircraft? You're not. That's a pretty cut and dry question. No. That is not what happened on a recent LL flight. LL? Of all airlines? Really? Of all airlines. Of all airlines. Yeah. I, I picked this article out in particular because I, I didn't quite like the ending, but every now and then you get a really stupid passenger who decides, I'm going to be an idiot and smoke in the lavatory. And then they they throw away the cigarette. And of course, it's not fully extinguished and it starts to fire in the lab. These things happen. And, and pro tip, this is why airplane lavatories have a tiny, tiny, tiny ashtray in, in the door or somewhere because airlines and manufacturers know some idiot is going to try to smoke and they want to give them somewhere to safely put out that cigarette without starting a fire in the trash can, which is exactly what happened here. It happens. But in this case, it started an actual fire. The smoke detector went off. The crew dealt with it. But I was just kind of shocked that the article that we get from the Jerusalem Post claims that LL only really gave the passenger a talking to, basically, a, a slap on the wrist, not even saying, uh, yeah, don't do it again. It just strikes me as odd that for LL, an airline renowned for its overbearing safety procedures to the point where I know people who refused to fly LL and deal with any of that had a passenger start a fire on board and just said, yeah, what are you going to do? Don't do it again. It's just weird. Like even in the US, there would be fines and, and and all sorts of things would happen. If I were an airline and someone started a fire on my 
aircraft, I would probably ban that passenger from ever flying with me again. So I just found it very I, odd. I don't want to deal with you I anymore. I don't want to deal with you. You're an idiot. You don't deserve to fly on my airline. But for LL to only say, yeah, don't do it again, that's really surprising to me. <laughs> that's all I got. Fair enough. Let's take a break there. Now that Jason's worn himself out, let's take a break. And when we come back, we will be joined by Mark Van Honecker, who has been on the program before. But in case you don't know, he is a pilot for a UK-based airline, and he flies the 787. So we are going to come back and talk with him about his new book and seeing cities from a pilot's perspective. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We are now joined by Mark Van Honecker, who is a 787 pilot for a major European airline. He is a former 747 pilot, and we've talked with Mark in the past about kind of the differences between the 747 and the 787 and his previous book, Skyfaring. And he's written in Mark, is it safe to say this, this is a follow-up? That's kind of how I read it, a continuation on the theme. First of all, it's great to be with you guys again. Yeah, welcome back. Thank you. I'm always happy to, to listen to the podcast. You wouldn't believe how many cities I listen to it in. Probably more than almost anyone, I imagine. Ooh, that's a contest we should have. <laughs> you should. I'll take on your listeners in terms of more cities. <laughs> I think a pilot's probably going to win. Maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah. Well, This new book is in some ways a sequel to Skyfaring. If Skyfaring was focused more on the experience of flight, then I imagine a city is more focused uh, on the destination, on what happens after we land. But there's definitely a healthy dose of av geekery in it as well. So I, I hope it'll appeal on both of those fronts. I really enjoyed reading both of them, both Skyfaring and Imagine a City. And while I was reading Imagine a City, the, the new book, Skyfaring is much more about kind of being in the air. But there's that one passage in Skyfaring where you talk about kind of never going outside, but you've traveled, you know, 10,000 miles, where you go from hotel to bus to the front door of the you know the terminal to the jet bridge to the aircraft never quite getting fresh air but this kind of takes that and and just kind of blows the whole thing up because you give us a, a really good look about what happens kind of in between those moments while you're in those other cities. And I really appreciated that about the new book. You know, once we do get to that hotel, especially as long haul pilots, you know, we tend to go to sleep for a few hours and then and then we wake up and we you know, most of us will try to go out and see something of that city that we've flown so far to see. And we go to them again and again and in a way that I think is, is really unique. And that's really something I wanted to capture in this book is the pilot's experience of cities. So let's pause for a moment. And I know you've got kind of an excerpt queued up for us. And so I'll ask you to, to read that and then we'll, we'll, we'll go from there and chat a little bit more about the book and all things flight. Sure, sure. So in this section of the book, this is from the introduction, and I, I've just gone to Abu Dhabi, which is a city that the 747 didn't fly to, but the 787 did at the time. And I've gone out with my colleagues to have some food and, and do some karaoke, as, a, as air crews tend to do. And then I've gone back to my hotel room, and I, I'm on a high floor. It's night. It's late. I'm still on London time, and I'm not quite ready to sleep. And, and I'm thinking about writing this book, about writing Imagine a City. And at this desk, I remember that for many years, I've wanted to write about what cities have meant to me. I want to record my journey from one city, my small hometown, to so many real cities that are each a thousand times more fascinating than anything I imagined as a child. I want to be open about myself as I write this, even if it's not always easy. I know that's the only way to try to understand my deep love for the hometown I was once so keen to leave. I have other, more matter-of-fact reasons to write this book. 
Most pilots love their job and tend not to want to retire when the rules say we must. When my days and nights of flying are finished, I want to be able to remember all I can about the cities I saw. In addition, while years may remain before my retirement, I'd like to share now what I love best about many of these cities, not only with my family and friends, but with readers who might not travel as often, as far, or in as extraordinary a manner as a pilot does. And extraordinary is the right word. Long-haul airline pilots today are given an experience of cities that no one else in history has ever had. Two decades into my career, in an age in which it often seems that the urbanized future of our civilization is taking form directly before my eyes, my experience of cities as a pilot remains a source of deep fascination to me, one that's distinct from my love for flight itself. During a single flight, we may cross above dozens of cities, most memorably after dark. On some journeys, the lights of a sleeping and apparently silent settlement beneath us, one that, if it doesn't have a major airport, we may not be able to name without consulting our navigation charts, suggest Coleridge's ancient mariner passing like night from land to land, and the fragility and even the loneliness of what an observer arriving in our orbit might regard as only one more of the universe's strains of bioluminescence. On other flights, when I see a gathering of dim lights ditched into the far below floor of a Siberian or Nigerian or Iranian night, I'm struck instead by a sense of warmth, even intimacy, and by the possibility that I'm looking down on an evening much like the most peaceful ones of my Pittsfield childhood. Then we descend. If we do so at daybreak, the returning light allows us to see how wilderness, farmland, inhospitably steep terrain, or thousands of miles of open ocean give way to our destination. One of the largest cities in history, perhaps, which has grown through its own long centuries, and which now, on this latest of its mornings, and in the last 20 minutes of our journey, expands to fill the jet's windscreen with a map-like view of its awakening streets. After we land, we have the opportunity to repeat or deepen a set of urban experiences that are, again, like those of no one else. Our stays in cities, in so many cities, are typically short but frequent, carefully arranged around our legal responsibility to rest, but also freedom-giving and time-bending, as shallow a traveler's experience as we might sometimes be grateful for, or as fine-grained as our interests in the length of our downroot stay might allow. The most remarkable effect of visiting cities in this manner, time and time again, year after year, is that each begins to take on a curious sense of familiarity. Indeed, in some cities, this familiarity is so powerful and deceptive that I struggle to remind myself. I am not from here. This city is not mine. Los Angeles, for example, is a place whose name first captured my imagination as a child and that I longed to someday see. After I trained to fly the 747, I began to fly there regularly. Then for a few years, I did not. And when I returned for the first time after the scap, I asked myself how many times I'd flown there in total. 15, perhaps? I checked my logbook, and it was 39. Now it's more than 50, which means I've spent more than three months in the city, long enough that when I'm in LA waiting for a coffee or stuck in traffic, it's easy momentarily to imagine that I've always lived there. Then I fly away, and when I meet someone from Los Angeles elsewhere in the world, I may be excited to talk to them, in part because I feel that we have their well-named metropolis in common until I catch myself. That feeling can't be right. I have it about too many cities for it to be true of any of them. Sao Paulo is another city I've visited more times than I can count without consulting my logbook. I've walked and run many miles in Ibirapuera Park, I spent hours people watching from the window seats of cafes and buffet restaurants near Avenida Polista. I've saved up errands from home merely for the adventure of getting a watch strap replaced in a South American megalopolis. I've visited the cathedral, the observation deck of the tower that resembles the Empire State Building, the food market full of fruits and fish that are foreign to me, and the stunningly named railway terminal, Estación de Luz, Station of Light. In Sao Paulo, indeed, I'll often find myself overtaking tourists on staircases and crowded sidewalks as sure-footedly and half-exasperatedly as I might at home. 
And then on that same afternoon, perhaps I leave. And a few days later, I'll catch myself walking like that someplace else. I think that the most interesting thing to me about the book and about being a pilot is that your journey begins and ends in the exact replica of the place that you've either left or going to by design. I mean, you know, all airports are the ICAO standards. They are exactly the same by design so that it becomes this, you know, uniform level of safety. People know what to expect. A pilot operating for a European airline or an Asian airline or a South American airline, they can all agree on the terminology, the visual references, everything. And yet, once you leave the airport, you get a much different experience compared to, well, really anyone. And the book really gives us a good look at how you especially have, I think, taken advantage of that. I think airports are a really interesting example of, of globalization and of global standards. And as you say, everything has to work with everything else. So, you know, we all speak English, all air crews speak English, to air traffic controllers are, are able to speak English. And it's it's a very particular kind of English, obviously, that's, that's technical and controlled. You know, the baggage trolleys, the baggage carts, they all have to be able to, to handle things from that have come in from all over the world. And, you know, you, you go to the duty-free shops and they're all selling kind of, you know, some local stuff, but usually usually there's the thing of M&Ms, you know, whichever, <laughs> whichever one you're in. And then eventually the doors of the terminal open and you walk out into these cities and of course, they are as unique as as people. Um, they are each their own their own little world, or a very big world in some cases. And and we have the chance to go to them in this way, which is you know really different from. I, I used to work in the business world, and, and you know you'd fly somewhere, and you know you'd have to sometimes you'd land and go straight to meetings, and then you'd have to socialize in the evening with clients or, or colleagues. Uh, then you might fly somewhere else. And if, of course, I, I like to travel places as a, as a regular tourist as well, but many tourists, when you go to a city, especially one that's on a long-haul flight, you might think that's the only time you'll ever be in that place. That's a pretty reasonable assumption if, you're, you know, if, you, have, you, know, if you go to Sydney or, or, or Rio or, or somewhere. That might be the trip of a lifetime, and you want to do everything you can. You want to see as much of it as you can. You want to see those, those postcard sites that you've seen. You want to see all the famous things that you dreamed of that drew you there. But for us as, as pilots and as a cabin crew, when we go to a city, we know we're going to go there again and again. And so we, it makes us able to, to really have a, a very relaxed and ongoing relationship with the city. I remember the, the first time I went to Beijing, some of my colleagues were going up to see the Great Wall, the segment that's nearest to the, to the city. And I'd never been to China before. I'd never been to Beijing. I'd never been to the Great Wall. But I already knew that a few weeks later, I'd be coming back to Beijing. So I thought, you know, I'll, I'll do the Great Wall that time, the next time. And, and this time, my first day in the city, I'm just going to walk. And, and I'll walk until I get tired. And then I'll get on the, get on the metro and, and go somewhere just randomly. And, and then I'll get a coffee and, and find my way back. And that kind of ease in a, in a city is really a very special thing about about working for an airline. And I, I think it's really underappreciated. And it's something I really wanted to capture in Imagine a City, this sense that we get to know the entire urban planet, both both as a kind of a whole, but also in, in these incredibly individualistic places. So what are some of your favorite cities to go to from visiting the actual city perspective outside of being a, a pilot? Tokyo has a really important role in this book, and that's for a couple of reasons. I, 
I went to Japan in high school for a summer homestay, and we didn't stay in Tokyo very long. We had just a few days there before we went to the city that we that we stayed in. But we did have these these days in Tokyo, and I it was the first time I'd been to any city outside of Western Europe or the U.S. And I just couldn't believe the size of it and the complexity of its transport map. And I didn't appreciate that it was not only the largest city in the world, but the largest city to have ever existed. It's, you know, 37 million people or something. It's like the site. It's basically Spain in one city. And then I went back to Tokyo in my, when I worked in the business world. And then I didn't go for a few years until I became a pilot and then switched to long haul flying. And then the next time I went there was, uh, you know, in the cockpit of a 747 landing at Narita. And that was obviously a very special experience. And so the city, which has many attractions and many, you know, you know, has endless opportunities for exploration, also has that kind of personal resonance. One of the ways that it fits into the book, and I know Jason, I know your transport geekery doesn't stop at airplanes. So you'll know all about the Yamanote line, which is that circle line that goes around the center of Tokyo. It's a transport line like no other. Busiest in the world. Yeah, it is. Yeah, for a while, when it was last measured, six of the 10 busiest train stations in the world were on this line, which is just extraordinary. A train comes at rush hour. I think at rush hour, there's like 50 trains in operation. They basically leave a station in one direction or another every minute. More people ride that line than ride the entire London Underground system in in a day. And and it's a great way to explore the city. It's a great way to geek out if you're interested in transport and, uh, and trains. It's a marvel of efficiency. And then, of course, Wherever you stop along it, you can get out and see a totally different section of the city. Tokyo is kind of famous for having, you know, not having one center, but for having many, many centers as a city that big must must, I think. And so the endlessness of of Tokyo is is kind of symbolized by this line that also simplifies it because you can look at, you know, the map where whichever kind of transport map you look at, you can see the Yamanote line, that green circle in the middle, and it really helps you orient yourself and and to appreciate what a what a marvelous metropolis it is. Yeah, Tokyo definitely is one of those cities where you can go anywhere and be anywhere and find something to do, but it's also overwhelmingly complex. I mean, just literally just yesterday by chance, I was looking at uh, Apple Maps and, and Google Maps, the transport network in, in, Japan, in Tokyo, and it is it is wildly confusing, but also just kind of somehow works, doesn't it? It does. The way that maps are designed there, you know, they're really designed to quite a different aesthetic. If you compare that iconic London Underground map, which is just so focused on simplicity and, you know, very rigid design formats. And, you know, maybe the Tokyo system is too complicated for that kind of a map, you know, or maybe it, it's just, you know, it's just a different kind of preference for it. It is an unbelievable city. And, you know, now, of course, we fly to Haneda, which was a new thing for me on the 787. It was a different airport. In all my times there previously, we'd stayed in Narita. And then, you know, getting into Tokyo itself from Narita is... It takes a minute. It takes a minute. It takes a minute. Yeah, I'm happy to have a chance to to see different parts of the city, though those that are closest to Haneda and to Yokohama, which is where we um where we stay as crew. When you're traveling in all these cities, you must find yourself with some downtime after you've been there one, two, three, four, ten, fifteen, twenty times. That are there things you like to do frequently in cities you visit? Like I know our friend Steve Giordano of uh, Nomadic Aviation picked up golf in countries that he visits, and he actually brings his golf bags. You probably can't do that on on your aircraft, but is there anything you like to try to do in in a lot of your different cities? One of the things that that Imagine a City shows about my own career, but also suggests about my colleagues, is that you know whatever it is you love as a pilot, you'll or as a cabin crew member, you'll have the whole world of it. If you you know, we all love flying, but even if you didn't, it would be be a pretty good job to encounter whatever it is you do love. So, you know, if you're into golf, you'll play all around the world. If you're into opera or art, you will experience 
more of those things than than anyone else, really, unless you're like a professional travel writer or something. For me, I always had this tension, which maybe you guys will will know yourselves from the city that, is, that from the cities that you know the best, between doing something I already know I love and then doing something new, and that is. You know, that is a, a tough thing. And I, I generally try to combine the two. So, you know, I'll go to usually start my day in a city at a cafe that I know and love. And, you know, I've got for the writing side of my life, I usually have some emails to attend to or something to edit. And then I really like to walk and I, and I try to just explore as best I can on foot until I get tired. And then I hop on a train or a bus. I find local buses actually are a great way to experience cities. I know this best in London. You know, when we have people visiting, we often will take them on a local bus rather than on the tube because it's, you know, it's much longer, but it's it's a great way to see the city and to see how how it's grown together. I mean, it's in you know, London, for example, is like a collection of villages that were in some ways that grew together into a metropolis. The same way that LA did in a different age and with faster transport, you know, in terms of cars rather than horses. So that tension between something you already know you love and something new is, is something that comes and goes. And, and of course, there's some days when I, when I don't leave the hotel and, you know, it's raining and I'm not in the mood or I've got an article to finish or something. But most of the time, I try to I try to get up and go. But before we let you go, I, I want to ask you about things that you don't like. Are there any cities that you don't like flying to? Good Either question. you don't like the airport or you don't like the city where you're like, I love, I mean, I'm from Chicago, so I love Chicago, but I hate flying into O'Hare or, or vice versa, something like that. That's a good question. You know, pilots and aircrew in general have, you know, we'll have different tastes in terms of what we want out of a city. If you're in the middle of an English winter, then the idea of going to um, not just to Cape Town, but to summer in Cape Town, you know, by flying to a different hemisphere, that's something that a lot of people love. I actually really like winter. So snow forms a part of a chapter in the book where I'm talking about my hometown, which is quite a snowy town, and also some cities like Sapporo and Montreal that are kind of famous for their snowiness. And so, you know, I end up bidding for Montreal or Calgary in the middle of winter, and some of my colleagues probably probably think I'm out of my mind as they're packing their uh, their golf bags to go to Johannesburg. I mean, I guess in terms of airports themselves, you know, there is a lot of paperwork and walking and time between when we are in the cockpit, we parked and we've shut down the engines and done all our cockpit paperwork. And when we actually get on a bus, which is taking us to the hotel. And, you know, that just depends that time really depends on the size of the airport and how busy it is. And, you know, sometimes we fly to an airport where we're the only international flight that's a, that's landed at that time, where we're one of the only international flights at all. And we can be from the, from the, the door of the jet to the door of the bus in like 15 minutes. And other airports, you know, they're, they're just much bigger, they're much busier, and that can end up being an hour or an hour and a half sometimes. And so I'm trying to think of some of the quickest ones. You know, like when we go to the Seychelles, for example, I mean, you know, we're the only plane in the sky sometimes and we land and everyone you see in the baggage hall or in the immigration hall, every, literally everyone you see is, it was one of your passengers. <laughs> it's kind of, and we all kind of go through together and then we all make our way out and onto the island. So yeah. And, and other, you know, bigger airports are, you know, are always more complicated. I, I really like LA's new international terminal or renovated international terminal. I think as you go down the stair, the main escalators, they've got, they've got that cool gigantic screen you walk under. And whenever I see that, I'm like, okay, I'm in LA. Here we are. <laughs> yeah. It's a very, I don't want to call it iconic because it's not quite there yet, but it's getting to the point where you're like, yes, I'm, I have a fundamental understanding that this is where I am. It's a very noticeable and kind of marker of place. A lot of airports don't have that. 
where you kind of land and you're like, I'm in an airport. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if you've had a window seat or even better, a cockpit seat for the flight into LA, which is you know, just such an iconic arrival. I mean, you guys will know this as well as me, but it's just an amazing place to fly into, especially at night. There's a short section in Imagine a City where I quote uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, who was flying there in the 1940s, like maybe 1946 or something. And I think she had a relative in Pasadena. And she, you know, she's remarking on how amazing the lights of LA are. And that was, in the, you know, that was 80 years ago. You know, imagine what she'd say of it now. <laughs> yeah. A little bit more sprawl. A little bit more sprawl and a lot more <laughs> a light, I bit. think. Yeah. 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 Mark, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and share a little bit of your book with us. The book is called Imagine a City. It is on bookshelves, internet places, and all sorts of other areas, stores, etc., where you can get books in the US and in the UK. We're still waiting on the the South Korean version of this particular book, yes? Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> uh, there is going to be a Japanese one, which means a you know a great deal to me because as I was saying, Perfect. Japan is such a big part of the book and of my, my own life. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that as well. You can also find Mark's writing in a variety of publications, especially the Financial Times. And if you are lucky enough to be flying on a major European airline aboard a 787, he might even be your pilot. Mark Van Honecker, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, guys. Look forward to uh, seeing you on board. Welcome back. I want to go to Japan. Oh. Yeah, I, I just want to go, well, really anywhere. You know, and, and I was thinking about when Mark was talking about, you know, kind of knowing that he's going back to a place. I've started thinking about Stockholm in that way because, I mean, we've been going for, you know, I, I've been going for, I think this will be my ninth year back and eighth year back. And you've been going almost as long. And often we've been going together for, for kind of the, the December trip. And like coming up with new things to do, it's like, well, what do you want to do? Because we've done the touristy, all the touristy stuff. So it's like, what's next? Yeah, what do you do? I legitimately had that thought process last year because I arrived the day before you or, that's or, right, or that's like right. eight hours before you. Right, right. At, at, some stupid hour, like 5 a.m., and had had to wait for <laughs> Stockholm to wake up before I could do anything. And I legitimately thought to myself, well, I have nothing to do. I've done the thing. I've done this. I've done that. I should right. just get on a train and like go yeah. somewhere and kill eight hours just by riding on a train. And I didn't do it because I, I did find some other things to do. But next time, I, I don't know. I might just do there that. There you go. So tell me about – the night drone. The night drone. I got in an unsolicited PR pitch from a company called Pika, I guess, P-Y-K-A. And I've very nearly deleted it without opening it as I typically do, but I did open it and I'm glad I did because they are the maker of a fully autonomous electric agricultural aerial application aircraft, which is a lot of fancy words to say crop duster. And they say they have secured the first regulatory approval to fly an uncrewed aerial spray mission with a fixed-wing aircraft at night. Well, at least in Costa Rica, at least. They say that they are operating over banana plantations in Costa Rica and flying at night is better for uh, better spray distribution as there are, are lower winds at night. And it also gives them an increased viable spray window, doubles it actually from five to 10 hours. And that's nice, but also the, there's a video of obviously when they're crop dusting, they do that at a very, very low altitude. And that's something humans probably shouldn't be doing at night because you need to see things and not crash into them. But an autonomous drone probably has the area all mapped out with LIDAR and all that. So it doesn't have that problem. So I just found this was really 
neat application of autonomous aviation to actually benefit something rather than, you know, a single seat EV tall autonomous aircraft to get you to LAX or, or whatever nonsense. Like this actually serves a, a real helpful, useful purpose. Uh, some people might not like that it's crop dusting and it sprays chemicals all over plants and all that stuff. But at least this theoretically is a societal positive rather than just, I don't know, nonsense peddled by PR companies about getting to an airport from the Grand Canyon or something like that. I just found this interesting. (laughs) I just think, what are the chances of us talking about crop dusters two weeks in a row? Wait, we did? The Cuban pilot. Oh, that's right. That was a crop duster. But this one's autonomous and you you probably can't flee the country on it because it doesn't have a seat or a cabin. Fair enough. You can cling to the outside. I don't know. But I don't know. I thought this was cool. All right, let's close the show with good old-fashioned talk about unions, and then a couple incidents that have happened over the past week. So United Pilots have voted down the tentative contract that kind of union leadership had agreed to. The Airline Pilots Association now saying the tentative agreement fell short of the – this is – I'm quoting them now – fell short of the industry-leading contract United Pilots have earned and deserve after leading the airline through the pandemic and back to profitability. As it turns out, Delta's pilots feel exactly the same way because they have also voted to authorize a strike as part of their negotiations with the airline. But that does not mean a strike is imminent or anything. Correct. It does not mean a strike is imminent, nor does it mean for Delta's purposes in this respect that Thanksgiving travel will be interrupted. It just means that the union has voted to authorize the ability to go on strike. Delta's pilots voted on Monday to authorize a strike in order to they say put forth the seriousness of their position, quoting the I love union titles. It's one of my favorite things in the world. Captain Jason Ambrosi, the chair of the Delta Master Executive Council, which is one of the heads of the pilots union, says, today Delta's nearly 15,000 pilots sent a clear message to management that we are willing to go the distance to secure a contract that reflects the value we bring to Delta Airlines as frontline leaders and long-term stakeholders. Delta and United Pilots are basically both saying, hey, we stuck it out. We got through the pandemic. Now we need a contract that reflects all of the work we put in to make sure that the airline didn't you know, stop being an airline. Yeah. And they've got good luck to stand on now that both of these airlines, I believe, are raking in record-breaking revenue post-pandemic or whatever it is we're in now. So uh, that's a real nice bargaining chip. Yeah. So no strikes are imminent, but it is a strike authorization vote intended to to send the message, hey, let's you know, kind of buckle down and get on with this and and get a contract. The flip side of all of that, Lufthansa has reached an agreement with its cabin crew. That squares them away at least to the end of next year. So there will be no Lufthansa flight cancellations because of cabin crew strikes, at least through 2023. Yeah. uh, Don't forget about, you know, the flight crew or the baggage handlers or the fuelers at Frankfurt. Uh, Still lots can go wrong, but at least that's one check mark. Taking one piece of the puzzle away is is fine by me. That's nice. All right. So here's an interesting one. And by interesting, I mean, frankly, kind of terrified. A Viva... A320 Neo was flying from Cali to Rio Hacha, and the weather was bad. And so they tried to divert to Medellin, and the weather was bad. And so they went to Monteria. 
They landed fine. They taxied to the gate. They parked the aircraft. At the beginning of flight, the aircraft had 180 minutes of fuel for the 80-minute flight. So plenty of fuel, and they were ready to go. By the time they landed and parked the aircraft, they had about 200 kilograms of fuel left. That is not a lot. That's about uh, the combined weight of like two and a half people. <laughs> a little bit more than that, I think. Is it? I don't think it is. 200, well, 200 kg to pounds quick, is like quick. 440 pounds. So that's like, if we're, okay, talking, if we're talking about people. Americans, it's like two and a half okay. people. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So not a lot of fuel left, but they landed safely. The Colombian authorities released a preliminary report. We'll link to that in the show notes. And they are investigating this as a serious incident. That's something, right? That's the good thing there. And then this happened today. A Ural Airlines flight landed apparently with locked brakes yeah. on the main gear. The information that came across at least Twitter said the, the brakes were locked up, which is interesting because how would – I don't know. That, that's a very odd thing. And, and Peter Lemmy on Twitter stated that there's no procedure, I guess, in the, the QRC or, or the manual about what you do if the brakes are locked up or what the landing procedures are because it's not something that I guess really happens often. But we did some research and we found this has actually happened before. And we don't know why this particular incident occurred, but there's a bulletin from the AAIB way back in September of 2007 in, in Leeds. Whoa, that's the second mention of, of Leeds today. <laughs> that's interesting. Basically, an A319 operated by, you know what? I, I don't think it actually says. An A319 operated by an airline, the pilots meant to deploy the flaps to the full position, but the pilot accidentally somehow engaged the parking brakes of the aircraft, which is kind of like mind-blowing in that they are very, very different switches, very, very different mechanisms. One's a pull and kind of push down, and the other is a, a twisting mechanism. So that that's very odd. And the pilots didn't realize that this happened, and neither of them noticed this the parking brake display on the ECAM. So a lot of mistakes were made there. I would imagine the same thing happened here, but I guess we will wait to see if if and when a report is ever published because these days in that region, who knows if we'll ever see. So it. two things, two uh -huh. things. Okay. One, it was BMI. The A319 was BMI. Ah, ah, rest in peace. So there you go. And then the second thing is there. there is already preliminary reporting from the Ural flight. Really? That was yeah. quick. So the pilots of the Ural Airlines, and I'm quoting accident investigation authorities on Aviation Safety Network's database. They're quoting the aviation authorities in Russia. The pilots of the Ural Airlines Airbus A320 reported the experience a critical brake failure at an altitude of 500 meters when the parking brake spontaneously applied on the aircraft. Hmm. The alarm was triggered. The wheels remained locked for landing. So it sounds like the same thing happened, but spontaneously or not will be the the interesting thing there. Interesting indeed. I can't say parking brakes spontaneously activating is something anyone has really heard of happening much in the past, but we'll let the investigation do its thing. 
there you go. So that's all we've got for episode 188. I want to thank everyone for making it through the sound of my voice today. I hope you enjoyed my dulcet tones. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Mark Van Honecker, and I hope that you'll look forward to our conversation with John Ostrauer next week, where we're really going to dive into Boeing's Investor Day. And for the first time in a few years, get an idea of what that company is all about, what they're planning on doing over the next few years, and how they're going to get to the point where they're going to build a new airplane. So I'm looking forward to that conversation with John. If you have questions about that, please, please email us, podcast at fr24.com. Put Boeing questions or or something in the subject line so we, we can look out for that and send us your questions, anything you may have about Boeing and, and its future, and we'll be sure to ask John about that next week. In the meantime, why not leave a rating or review of the podcast? Say, Ian should talk like this all the time, or Jason should learn to talk like this, or I don't know. Just let us know what you think of the podcast. And importantly, let your friends know, because the more people that share that this podcast exists, the more we can keep doing this podcast, and we really like doing it. So for episode 188 of AvTalk, I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.